and welcome back to the Interlude Podcast, where I share the journeys and experiences of women who are living with cancer. Today, my guest is Julia Malice. Julia was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2013 while pregnant. She was 29 years old at the time. She received chemotherapy during pregnancy, and then after her delivery of a healthy boy, she had tests performed that she could not have done while she was pregnant. Unfortunately, it was found that the cancer had spread to her brain, liver, and bones. Julia is now 36 years old, living with metastatic breast cancer and making a direct impact in patients' lives through her work as a breast cancer advocate. Like last week's conversation with Dr. Kelly Shanahan, Julia and I recorded this interview right in the middle of the ASCO 2019 annual meeting in Chicago. It is impossible to find a quiet spot among the 40,000 attendees, so please ignore the background noise. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Julia. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, So I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2013 when I was pregnant. Uh, I was about 20, 22 weeks pregnant and um, found a lump in my breast and it turned out to be cancer. Was very surprised to know that there's um, that's not that uncommon, and that there's there are things you can do when you're pregnant, treatments that are safe for the baby. Um, I received four rounds of AC chemo. My son was born at 37 weeks, healthy, full of hair. I had no hair, um, and right after his. The delivery, I was still in the hospital, and they brought me downstairs to the CT, and he was still in the nursery, and we found out that I had extensive mats all throughout my bones, liver, and then later brain mats. So uh, my treatment changed from what we had planned to uh, metastatic breast cancer treatment. I am HER2 positive, so received some Herceptin-based treatment and had uh, very bad cardiomyopathy, so um, my heart almost failed. And long story, eventually I did uh, get stabilized and uh, start responding to a Herceptin-based drug. I have been on that for five years, have been dealing with brain meds in the middle of all that because even the drug that has worked in the rest of the body doesn't get to the brain. But my son is now almost six, uh, and when he was three or four, he started going to preschool, and I had more time. I had stopped working. My health had stabilized a little bit, and I decided that it was time for me to give back to the community and get involved. And there's so much that we can talk about here. Let's, I want to hear more about the patient advocate, but let's back up a little bit. You know, there's so much emotion. You, you're getting chemotherapy. You just delivered a beautiful boy, and then you find out that you have metastatic disease. How do you begin to process that? Yeah. Um, I remember that day very well, the day of my metastatic diagnosis, and the doctor cried, and I cried. My mom cried. My husband cried, um, and it was a blur. Uh, and what I would, I remember feeling, it's okay. I've I've had a good life. Like I don't care. Like I can I can I can die. It's okay. But just feeling really 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 sad for all the people that I would leave behind. It just seemed so tragic. Like 
how come this baby that had to be exposed to chemotherapy and his mom's belly now has no mom and this is just so sad. Oh, now you're going to make me cry. <laughs> um, that's, you know, when you become a parent, I think life changes, your perspective on everything Yeah, changes. And so you went, you raised him, raising him, went through treatment. And what was it like in those early days of being, a, you know, having a newborn and going through treatment? Yeah, so um, the early days were actually not, um, like I, I was really spending all my energy and trying to stay up, stay alive because my heart failed, my ejection fraction dropped to 10, I spent weeks in the ICU. So I, I didn't really have too much of a relationship with him. Plus, I think this is like a perfect situation for postpartum. So everything that I was dealing with was stressful. I couldn't really bond with my son. I couldn't breastfeed. I, I was really afraid of him getting attached to me because I thought he was going to lose me. Um, so actually, our, we didn't really bond until a little bit later. And that's okay. We did bond with him. You know, he's doing well. Yes. So let's talk about becoming an advocate. And so, you know, you said you felt like you had to give back. And that's, I think, really noble because you're dealing with so much. And to think of others in that time is, is brave. How did you, did you just say, okay, I'm going to be a patient advocate? Or what were the steps that you took to get to that? I think the, so I, I took a while to want to, participate in support groups and be active online in groups and things like that. But when I started doing that, um, since I had lived for, at that time, a couple of years with brain meds and all that, I, um, I realized that I was often seen as an example for people that were newly diagnosed and that I had knowledge and, um, I'm not a scientist, but I'm an educated person that has been able to learn some of the things that have affected me. And, and I, I, I don't have a hard time speaking up for myself. I, so all of those things um, I thought I could be sharing with others. And um, I, I often say that all of the advocacy work that we do is definitely for others, but it's mostly for us. Um, so we get a lot from it too. And logistically, how does one become an advocate? Um, so there are a few organizations that are a good way to get into the world of advocacy. For me, I attended the Living Beyond Breast Cancer Conference. Uh, they're an organization in Philadelphia. They have an annual metastatic breast cancer conference in April, and they have a program called Hear My Voice, where they select 20 or 30 people and train them to become advocates. And they really do a good job uh, showing people all the different kinds of advocacy that you can do. So uh, you may fundraise, or maybe what you want to do is um, be involved with your hospital, or maybe what you want to do is... Uh, do more for caregivers or research advocacy or uh, policy. and So they really expose you to all of those. Uh, so that's how I got involved. And what a uh, area did you decide to explore? 
Um, I, I like a lot. I've usually been like interested in a variety of areas, but uh, research advocacy is, is one that I really enjoy, um, and policy is definitely um, perhaps my favorite. I live in D.C., um, am close to all of the regulatory agencies, close to the federal lawmakers. It is possible to be, to, to, to get our voice uh, to them and, and tell them how patients are affected by things. So that's one that I really enjoy. And you come to these meetings? Yes. this is. I, I haven't been to that many, so this is only my second large meeting. I went to San Antonio okay. in December, and I came here. And I also go to the Theresa's Research Metastatic Breast Cancer mm-hmm. Conference. Now, were you in medicine before your diagnosis? I'm an economist, okay. not at all. So this is a completely different Absolutely world. different, yes. So for people who are maybe not advocates, but just for anyone who's diagnosed with breast cancer, right, you obviously have to learn about all of this. Mm-hmm. Where did you go? How did you learn about what HER2 is besides what your doctor yeah. told you? Yeah. The internet. Um, you have to choose the right places. Uh, I did read a lot. There's a lot of information on on um, HER2 and their books, and uh, that's kind of where I started and as I would meet more people I would learn about other subtypes and that's been a good resource for me really my friends that have the disease too and there's a whole online community of it's patients, huge survivors yeah people living with cancer yes it's really big a lot of closed groups um, some people use uh, different websites that provide more privacy than a Facebook group or a, a Twitter chat, but there are um, thousands, millions of people online looking for help and for knowledge. And what are your thoughts on support groups? Good, bad? Both? I think they're wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think it's important to find what works for you. Uh, there's so many different ways to do it. So, for example, I remember when I was pregnant and I found out I had breast cancer, I didn't want to talk to anyone that had breast cancer because I felt like they had no idea. My biggest worries were really about my baby. So I didn't want someone to tell me, oh, I had this surgery or that surgery. That was not my concern. Um, And I found a community that really connects women that have that are pregnant and that receive a cancer diagnosis, um, mostly breast, but other cancers too. Uh, and it's 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 something that's not as uncommon as one would think. And that that it was a, a mentor that I was matched with, and I had uh, mm-hmm. conversations over the phone. And then as soon as my son was born, and I discovered I was metastatic, I didn't really bond with her anymore because she had have had an early stage diagnosis and now my problems were completely different. Can you talk about living with metastatic breast cancer, right? So there's, like you said, there's a divide. Early stage breast cancer is a completely different situation than metastatic disease. I do believe that it's very important that both communities have a relationship and that the early stagers are aware of the risk that 
their disease becomes um, metastatic and that they also understand that there are so many people living with metastatic disease and that's the only terminal breast cancer diagnosis and that most of the research doesn't go towards the the focus of metastatic disease, that prevention is actually not even real because you can't prevent breast cancer. You can only reduce the risk of it happening. Um, but at the same time, as much as we want to collaborate with the early stage community, our reality is so much different. We often talk about how like losing your hair is the least of our worries. I don't discount it that much. I after dying, it might be one of the worst things, but, but it's still like, yeah, my friends are literally dying. So it's a different level of worry. There's this community and you, know, you hear all the time, well, so-and-so is not with us anymore. You get attached to these women. When that happens, when those, that occurs, do you see your own mortality? Yes. The, the hardest thing about advocacy is the friends that you lose. I, I, I would definitely say that. And the two hard parts about it are that, one, you get attached to people. You really connect to them really at the core because you share, like, really deep uh, thoughts and connections about the purpose of life and what you care about, really. And, um, and then they die, and you lost a wonderful friend deal with two things one is why her not me and am I next it's very hard and that's definitely something we talk about in the advocacy community and it's very important to um, do some self-care and maybe step away from it maybe I mean I don't I still I still don't know I'm I'm still grieving um, the person that I got the closest to was a woman Jennifer that um, died in February of this year and she was 24 years old and I still can't believe she's gone and I feel like maybe I could have done more to help her and there's no right way yeah we'll talk about survivor's guilt and there it's something we don't talk about yes. you know with our patients yes and you know, whether it's someone dying when you are living with metastatic disease or you know there's a lot of guilt about um you know, why did someone's disease come back and yeah. mine didn't? You know, there's no, I think, learning how to cope and self-care, yes. and that's really important. Yes. What are some good, what are some things that you do to cope? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not religious at all. Uh, I know that for some people that's very important. Um, I really try to um, focus on what I can do to feel better right now. And um, some of those things are being with people you love and um, not doing something you want, you don't want to do and really uh, paying attention to your senses when you're living any moment of your life and watching what you feel in your stomach or how your heart beats faster. And is that something that is really giving you joy? Or um, I've learned to pay a lot more attention to those things. By being aware and by being very in tune with your body, do you live with a fear that something is going to grow or something is going to come back? How do you reconcile a new pain yeah. with those thoughts? Yeah, no, those are uh, realities. I think even early stagers deal with that. Um, any pain is um, 
I mean, literally, I have a five-year-old, so I had this terrible uh, itch on my head, and I was sure that I had a recurrence of my brain mats, and maybe it was skin, or I had this whole... When I found lice, and it was like a a blessing. It was a blessing. I have lice. Um, Everything makes you think you have cancer, um, or perhaps you have a a side effect from the drug that will make you not be able to take the drug, which then is going to become a problem. So no, it's definitely um, another thing that has happened to me. And I, I think all of this has gotten a little bit better over the years, but one thing that happens is I get scans every three months, and I swear it's not psychological, it's physical. With the week before scans, I start feeling some things, like some things start to hurt, and they really do hurt. So how can I explain that this is happening, and then the scan may find that knowing that that pain you felt really has nothing to do with anything on your scan. Or That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, the mind-body connection, yes. I mean, it's so, yes. it's so true. You know, there's a perception, and I think it's outdated, but it's out there that people with metastatic or terminal cancer look like they have terminal cancer, mm-hmm. and you don't. And mm-hmm. tell me about that. Yeah, definitely something people are very surprised. It's not something I, like, walk with uh, written on my forehead, but I don't. I, for a while, did not share it with others, but, but now I, I don't have it as a secret and I do share it with people when, when it's the right time or they may find it by, by, by Googling me or finding my Twitter or something like that. As much as you can, you, you take it as, a, as an opportunity to teach them when you get the question, oh, but you're okay now, right? But did, when did you finish your treatment? Or, um, but did you have surgery? No, I didn't have surgery. Why didn't you have surgery? Because it had already spread. Oh, it was in your lymph nodes. No, it was in my bones, my liver, and my brain. Oh, my God. Like, mm-hmm. And they step, take a yeah. step away from you. Yeah, yeah. That's hard because people don't know a yeah. lot. And they know by their friend's mother who had something, mm-hmm. and that's their frame of reference. Mm-hmm. And I think people try to help, but they don't know how to help. Yeah. What are some helpful things that people sh- could say? One thing that people can do is listen um, rather than have to share something. Like, I know someone that blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't, I really don't care about the person that you know. And so to listen is, is important. Um, to empathize without wanting to compare it to something else. I, I mean, I can tell you a funny story. I have literally had someone tell me, I'm so sorry. I know how you feel. I had really, really bad acne when I was growing up. (laughs) This was someone that was not joking. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, everyone's is really living their own uh, path and um, there's no comparison, no judgment. Just take it in and and be there. And, you know, a lot of times when people are diagnosed, whether it's early stage or not or metastatic, people say, well, what can I do? And I think that's a terrible, I mean, I know they want to help, but yeah. most people say, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, yeah. right? So I always say, well, ask someone to bring you dinner or yes. tangible things, yes. right? So do you have advice on that? Yes. No, I, I, I think you're, you're exactly right. So 
especially in the breast cancer population where most patients are women, I think on average we struggle a little bit in asking others for help. We take a lot into our own hands and it's really hard to ask for help. So um, what I have learned is the people that care for you and that are sad when they hear that you're struggling, all they want is something that they can do because they can't take away what you have. Um, and um, the best you can do is really try to find everyone's different and everyone's going to be good at something and bad at something. Someone's going to be terrible to bring to doctor's appointments. Someone's going to be terrible to clean your house. Someone's going to be terrible to drive you somewhere because they're going to be late. So find the one thing that that one person does really well and that you want them to do and assign it to them like very explicitly. Like, you are the best chef that I know. Please bring me dinner once a week. And that is going to be a gift that you're going to be giving to your loved one. Uh, like, all they want is to do something that will help you. They can't, like you said, they can't take away the pain and they, they want to. So yes. I think the tangible things are really important. Where are, you're pretty active on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And you interact with a lot of the oncology community on there. What have you learned or what do you share? Like, what do you want a new oncologist to know from your perspective as a patient? Yeah. I think the first thing that I want all oncologists to know and and cancer researchers and social workers and nurses is thank you. Like, I just have so much admiration for people that purposely dedicate their lives to helping people with cancer. Like, I would never have entered the world of cancer if I didn't have to. But I'm here now, so that's it. One one day at a time, and you keep moving. But all of you have purposely made a decision one day where you said, I will go and take care of patients that have this deadly disease, and that die, and that have pain, and that get upset, and that's what I'm going to dedicate my life to it probably didn't choose this for the money you probably didn't choose it for the hours or the work-life balance Um, so I'm just so thankful and just so in awe of the people that do that I think there's really a trend towards getting the patient voice involved um, early in when it comes to research and maybe with policy too Um, like we know what's going on with us we like some of us like are informed on the science and so don't leave us until don't just include us at the very end of of everything you do Um, get us involved early in the research ask us if if we think that patients would do this or that or um, what is it that is hard about doing a clinical trial or why would you have taken this treatment versus that treatment and and so I think the oncologists and researchers that interact with the patient community on social media or in other formats are really one step ahead because they're, they're listening and, and they know what the actual final um, customer or a, yeah person you're trying to help. Well, it's true. There's all these clinical trials and some, some accrue very quickly and others 
take years to get patients. And I you know, always, always wonder, did you ask the patients when you yeah. designed it yeah. whether they would go on a study like yeah. this? So it, that's really important. Were you ever on a trial? Never did one. I, um, I had a craniotomy in 2015 and I went through the screening for a trial that was going to do different images of my brain before the surgery and try to determine if it was malignant or not before the surgery, compare the two images and then do the biopsy after the surgery and see which image was the best. But it was kind of a an emergency surgery, so they, they did the images, but they turned out not to look good, so it ended up not working out. What are your thoughts on clinical trials? I mean, you'll, you'll hear a lot from Kelly on trials. She's, she's really an expert in that, but we need so much more. We need, like, the 5% um, of patients that join clinical trials numbers is not okay at all. Um, patients want to participate in trials um, and uh, if we're not participating it really um, means one of two things either we're not being asked or we can't uh, maybe because the trials exclude us for a bunch of different reasons or because um, we can't afford to go to the institutions that have the trials or we can't afford to go into the institution as frequently or believe it or not to this day even after the ACA there's some insurances Medicaid is exempt from the having to pay for clinical trial routine care so some patients can't because their insurance will, won't pay for their routine care. It's so awful that there's all these barriers and financial, financial toxicity is mm -hmm. such a big barrier yes. to care. Yeah. People can't afford a $40 copay every week or yes. whatever it is. Yeah. So it, that's yeah. really, really Or hard. the parking. I mean, yeah. in some of these places, uh, people, I know people treated at UCSF, their parking is $40 every time they see their oncologist. Well, and, you know, it's, it's true because all of the trials, not all, but a lot, tend to be in big cancer mm -hmm. centers, which tend to be in cities mm -hmm. which don't have parking. Yeah. Yeah, and this is for this is even hard for the people that live in that area and that can drive there. Yeah. That's not even talking about the people that would have to get on a plane to go there. And all the people in rural areas where they don't have any access to care. And, it's, there's and why do they even have to go to an institution that regularly? If maybe what they're going to do when they come in is get their blood work and the pharmacist yeah. uh, at the small town where they live would be able to take their blood and, and ship it to yeah. the to the trial the, company. And, no, I mean, there's so, there's not great communication and trying to find trials and the, the network is, you know, I know ASCO yes. is hopefully going to make some headway in this, but uh, the, the networks right now don't yes. exist. For, for the that. finding trials is a big, big problem. Um, clinicaltrials.gov is really hard to use. You find so many and then yeah, I mean, it's even hard for me as an oncologist. You look, okay, there's a hundred trials, yeah. and and you know it's not updated. You don't know are they looking for patients? Are they not? I mean, it's that's a whole, yeah, you know, and it's unfair of us to have to ask patients to do that. Absolutely, completely unacceptable. Yeah. And I mean, I would even say that 
it would be unfair of a doctor to ask me to look for my own trials and I'm a well-informed advocate and I know that I am not uh, even close to the the average patient and, and having to understand that is like the language is not the right one. The no, it's not the responsibility. Website, the yeah. website where clinical trials are listed is not for patients. It's Absolutely. for researchers. Yes. Yeah. And um, it's interesting that in some cancers, we recently found that this is in more than, than breast cancer, but some advocates have taken, have taken this into their own hands and created tools that search the clinicaltrials.gov database and uh, make it work kind of like a, let's say, like a shopping cart where you select different, um, maybe yeah. subtypes of cancer or locations and, and then it finds the trials for you. And all of this is using the data from clinicaltrials.gov in the back. Oh, that's great. That really makes it a little bit but easier. This was, but that's... This was people that have cancer and yeah, terminal I mean, diagnoses are trying to navigate these tools on their own. No, I mean, I think it's, it's ridiculous. You have a patient comes in with their scans showing progression. You go, well, you need a trial. Yeah. Uh, I don't have one. Yeah. Um, luck. Yes. I mean, that we can't do that. Yes. You know? yeah. we, we definitely can't yeah. do that. Yeah. Anything else that you want to share? Um, I, so there's one thing that I've been talking with, uh, some oncologists recently, and one of the struggles that I find is is the hardest for the patient that gets diagnosed, especially with metastatic disease, is dealing with the grief and the, the worry that the caregiver is experiencing. So as the patient, we really have so much that we're already dealing with, and but but we have no control over what our caregiver is, how the caregiver is feeling or doing. So um, I think we're lacking support for the caregiver. And as much as, as the oncologists can help with guiding the caregivers for getting uh, psychological help, I think that would be very good. That's really important because we don't do that. Yeah. And I think partly as... We don't see the caregiver without the patient. Yeah, that's so, true. And it kind of, you know, you say, okay, are you doing okay? But that's not enough, right? right. And there's no mechanism in place to have, you know, that same distress yeah. screening for the yeah. caregiver. Yeah, yeah. No, so I, um, I was uh, brainstorming with one doctor yesterday. And so if a patient is there for an appointment and, and I'll say she will be prescribed X drug to take, like a, a psychologist, maybe uh, some sort of physical therapy. Um, and then the same doctor can go to the caregiver and say, and for you, it would be very important for you to get assessed by a psychologist. And she, the patient, will will actually benefit from you going to to get help. Yeah, so it's part of your prescription. It's part of the patient's treatment yeah. plan that, is for, the for the caregiver to get help. That's really, I like that. I, 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 I hope um, it's something that we talk more about. Yeah. yeah, we have to because it's not It's not just you. It's mm-hmm. not just the patient. It's, it's everyone mm-hmm. who's touched by that. Yeah. yeah. Where can listeners find you on social media if they want to follow you? 
So I'm at It's Not Underline Pink. Uh, and I also have a website, uh, www.itsnot.pink. Thank you so much for talking Thank to you. me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Julia. We can learn so much from her experience. For me, one of the most important things that she said was when talking to someone who's going through cancer, just listen. Don't feel the need to share. That's so important and I think applies to any chronic illness or any hard thing in life. As always, I hope you enjoyed listening to these episodes And if you have a second, please take a moment to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts as that is the best way to help me grow this show. You can find me on social media at Dr. Toplinski on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter for more cancer news and podcast news and updates. Have a great day and I will see you all next week.